The Murder of Jamie Laity. I am always amazed when prosecutors decide to go to trial before a body is found. It's an aggressive move. This is one of those cases. In fact, in this case, there wasn't even physical evidence that a murder had occurred. The prosecutor was Juan Martinez, who years later became famous for prosecuting Jody Arias, arguably one of the most notorious cases in Arizona history. This case was especially intriguing to me because it happened near my home in an area that I'm extremely familiar with. Jamie Laity grew up in California with her parents, who emigrated from Thailand. Her older sister, Pepper, graduated from medical school, and Jamie's parents pushed her very hard to do the same. They were obviously adamant about her getting good grades so she could go to med school, but Jamie resented the pressure and stress that her parents put upon her. When it came time to choose a school, Jamie decided to pursue her degree halfway across the country at the University of Michigan. She created a new life with new friends and excelled in school. Her group of friends called themselves the 516 Girls, named after the house they shared at 516 Walnut Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The girls were die-hard fans of their football team, the University of Michigan Wolverines, and would watch every game together. After Jamie graduated from college, she got a high-paying job selling medical supplies in Arizona. Her parents pushed her and pushed her to go to grad school, but she was sick of being compared to her sister and cut off contact with her family once she left school. Arizona is a long way from Michigan, so that meant leaving all her college friends behind and again setting out for a new life on her own. She still kept in touch with her Michigan friends with phone calls and the occasional wedding, but the girls were now strewn across the world with some as far away as Germany, Russia, and Australia. In the years after college, it wasn't uncommon to not speak to them for months at a time. Her new job in Arizona kept her extremely busy with long hours, which kept her from meeting new friends as she had in Michigan. She decided to join a University of Michigan alumni group. The group would get together every weekend at a local bar and watch the Wolverine games. It wasn't long before Jamie met a fellow alumnus named Brian Stewart. Brian was good-looking, muscled, charismatic, and just as enthusiastic as Jamie was about Michigan football. He worked as a personal trainer at the local Gold's Gym, and the two hit it off. Within a year, Brian moved in with Jamie in the tract home that she'd bought in Chandler, a suburb just southeast of Phoenix. Jamie, of course, made a lot more money than Brian, but she didn't seem to mind. She covered most of the bills, and from the outside, the two lived a normal life for the next two years. The economy was hit hard in the Phoenix area during the financial crisis of the mid-2000s. The house that Jamie had purchased earlier was now upside down, meaning she owed more to the bank than the property was worth. That was fine until 2009, when Jamie lost her high-paying job with the medical supplies company. Jamie looked for several months for a new job, but the prospects weren't good during those times. Her money supply was dwindling, and so was Brian and Jamie's love affair. Jamie was always a bit quiet and reserved, but when the money started draining and the job selection was slim, Jamie became despondent and her affection dropped off. It didn't help that Brian had some problems with the law. 
To hear Brian tell it, he was wrongfully accused of trespassing. It was all just a big, silly mistake. But in reality, he was caught breaking into a Mercedes and was charged with burglary. He would miss his court dates several times and got rearrested a few times, and each time Jamie would faithfully pay his bail. He had an excuse for her every time. As far as she knew, he didn't have any court dates at all. He only told her that he was meeting with lawyers. Brian decided it was time to call it quits, so he got his own apartment in nearby Scottsdale. He didn't tell Jamie about the apartment until he was ready to move out, and on the night of March 17, 2010, he broke the news to her. But before he had a chance, Jamie had some news of her own. Jamie told Brian that she had been offered a job in Denver, Colorado. She had always told him that she didn't like the Phoenix area. She was excited to go to Denver and start a new life again, and she wanted him to go with her. However, Brian didn't like the idea. He wanted nothing to do with Denver and had already made up his mind that he was breaking up with her. He told her he thought it was better if she went her way and he went his. The two argued for a bit, but according to Brian, they both calmed down and went to bed after it all cooled down. Brian had to be at work early in the morning, so he kissed her goodbye and left around 3.45 that morning. A few weeks later, Brian emailed the president of their Michigan Alumni Club to tell her that he and Jamie had broken up and that she was moving to Denver to start a new life. Of course, this whole backstory was all just Brian's distorted truth. The actual truth was very different. Jamie didn't have any close friends in the Phoenix area other than Brian. The others at the alumni club were more of acquaintances than friends. She wasn't on the greatest terms with her parents and hadn't spoken to them in quite a while. Her best friends were her friends from college. But she didn't keep in everyday contact with them either. So it was no wonder that nobody noticed when there had been no contact from Jamie for almost three months. Brian would still attend the alumni meetings and her friends were getting anxious. They had sent her numerous emails, but she wasn't responding. Even if she had moved to Denver, she would have had the courtesy to return their emails. The alumni friends pressured Brian to call her parents, and he finally called her estranged father in California and told him that his daughter was missing. Jamie's father immediately called the Chandler police, and they stopped by Jamie's home to do a welfare check. We'll be back to True Crime Sleep Stories right after this message. What if you could share your story with the world? What if you could inspire others with your passion, your message, or your vision? What if you had a team to help you craft the perfect story for your business or brand? Well, you can. And we at With Aim are here to make it happen. With Aim is more than just a podcast production company. We are your storytellers, your voice, and your partner in creating a podcast that will captivate your audience, showcase your brand's personality, and build a lasting relationship with your customers. So don't let your story go untold. Start your podcast today. Visit with aim.co slash podcast to learn more. That's with aim.co forward slash podcast. With Aim, be the voice of your brand. They looked in the window of the garage and saw that her 1999 Honda was there, but her 2007 Ford Explorer was missing. When speaking to the neighbor, he told the police that there used to be a man and a woman living there 
but he hadn't seen them in a long time. The neighbor also mentioned that someone from a local Phoenix company showed up a few days prior and said they had hired Jamie for a job and gave her a laptop, cell phone, and credit card, but she never showed up for her first day at work, so the man was there to collect the belongings. Police broke into the house to find it extremely messy, but no sign of a struggle. This was extremely important to note because usually when a crime happens, there will be evidence of the crime or evidence that someone had tried to clean up. There was neither. Just an unkempt, cluttered house with mail on the table and clothes thrown about. They found her passport, clothes, and suitcases, but her driver's license and purse were missing so it was plausible she'd left somewhere on her own accord. Knowing that Jamie owned a second vehicle, police put out an alert to watch for it. Most police cars nowadays have license plate readers. In addition to police cars, they're on traffic cameras, entry gates, toll booths, and many other places. These are scanning devices that will continually scan license plates and store the data in a massive database. Police can now track the whereabouts of almost any vehicle very easily. The databases tracked Jamie's Ford Escape just 18 miles away in Scottsdale. The plates were regularly seen entering the gate of a condo complex. Chandler detectives staked out the condo and waited for the SUV to arrive. When it did, Brian Stewart was driving it. When police asked Brian why he was driving his girlfriend's car, he immediately corrected them ex-girlfriend. He told police that he had a perfectly good excuse for driving her car. He claimed she gave it to him as a parting gift before she left for her new life in Denver. Of course, detectives didn't buy his story. Brian was driving on an expired driver's license, so they were able to arrest him and also get a warrant to search his condo. Brian asked if he could go to the bathroom first before they drove back down to Chandler, but police denied his request. When they made the 30-minute drive back to Chandler, he strangely didn't need to use the restroom anymore. He clearly wanted to hide something in his condo before they searched it. Brian kept a meticulous home, quite the opposite of Jamie. Everything was in perfect order to the point of being OCD. However, one thing seemed out of place. There was a woman's wallet sitting on his desk. Inside the wallet were a few of Jamie's credit cards. Brian had been using the cards, purchasing camping supplies online, shopping at Target, Costco, and Walmart, and even buying subscriptions to online dating sites. One of those cards was an American Express business card. The company name was Care Fusion. Police later found out that this was the Phoenix company that had just hired Jamie in Phoenix, not Denver. They had issued her a laptop, cell phone, and credit card. But even more interesting was a copy of his birth certificate that they found. It was handwritten, whereas most birth certificates are typed. It seemed very fishy to the detective. There was also an envelope addressed to someone named Rick Wayne Valentini at a different address in Scottsdale. They thought maybe Brian had been stealing this guy's mail. But they really knew something was up when they found a divorce decree in his filing cabinet for Rick Wayne Valentini from Michigan. Police called the wife listed on the divorce decree and quickly realized that Brian Stewart and Rick Valentini were the same person. The ex-wife explained to police that she divorced Rick Valentini several years ago 
when he stole money from her father and moved to Arizona. Rick Valentini told her he was going to change his name so he wouldn't have to pay child support for yet another ex-wife in Michigan. She also mentioned to police that Rick was once physically and verbally abusive to her. Police now had enough to bring fraud charges on Brian and keep him in jail long enough to investigate if he'd done something with Jamie. When detectives confronted him that they knew he was Rick Valentini, he freely admitted it. He said he wasn't running from the law, but was desperately trying to leave behind a troubled life. He claimed he had a very traumatic childhood. His mother was only 18 when she gave birth to him, and his father didn't want anything to do with him. He said that his mother forced him to live in the garage for years until she finally sent him to foster care. He said the only love and attention he got as a child was from his aunts and uncles. Police contacted his aunt, who verified his story that he was physically and emotionally abused all of his childhood, but the cops didn't have much sympathy for him. As police looked further into Rick Valentini's past, they realized that he actually had three ex-wives. He also had two daughters, both of which he had never visited or paid child support for. The ex-wives all painted him as a pathological liar. They also found he was eight years older than he let on. His actual Rick Valentini birth certificate didn't match his Brian Stewart Arizona driver's license. The lies kept piling up. Brian claimed he'd spent time in the military in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was indeed in the military, but the truth was he'd never been to either of those places. He went AWOL, absent without leave, and when the military police arrested him, he stabbed them in the hand and leg. He spent two years in a military prison for that. And then there was his University of Michigan story. As expected, despite the diploma for the University of Michigan hanging on his wall and his University of Michigan ID card, Brian had never attended college. He had forged the diploma, just as he had forged his Brian Stewart birth certificate. The University of Michigan didn't even offer an education physiology degree like his diploma stated. Brian then revealed that he had an explanation for Jamie's disappearance. He told detectives that Jamie had lost her job and she was about to lose her house. She hated her parents. She hated Arizona and wanted to disappear so she could create another life, a completely new identity. Who better to help her than someone who had experienced creating a new identity? He said she wanted him to go with her, but he refused. Instead, he agreed to help her disappear. He also claimed that he'd been in contact with her a few times since she left and that she'd even been to his Scottsdale condo. He said he'd given her a key to his condo and he would sometimes notice that she'd been there when he was gone because he would see things had been moved around. Police still didn't believe his lies, but needed more evidence to charge him with anything other than fraud. They really wanted to slap a murder charge on him, but there was still no evidence that anything had happened to Jamie at all. Further searches of Brian's condo revealed Jamie's cell phone and a small white envelope in the back of a filing cabinet. Inside the envelope was Jamie's Arizona driver's license cut up into about 30 pieces. Brian claimed that Jamie cut the license up herself, but the DNA on the flap of the envelope proved that Brian had licked the envelope and sealed it, not Jamie. 
When going through Brian's bank statements, they noticed a charge to a self-storage facility. Police thought this was their lucky break. Maybe he'd hidden the body or other evidence of the crime. Police didn't find a smoking gun, but they did find several weapons, such as hatchets, swords, a sawed-off shotgun, a semi-automatic handgun, a shovel with clump dirt on it, and a big roll of thick black plastic liner. In Arizona, there are endless miles of desert. He could have easily used a shovel to dig a grave and the thick plastic liner to wrap a body. But again, there was no blood evidence or anything that could be used to get a conviction. Next were Jamie's credit card statements. Just prior to her disappearance, they saw that Jamie had paid to run an online background check. Police believe she'd found out about Brian's lies. They think she may have found out about his ex-wife's children and not going to the University of Michigan, and Brian not even being his real name. But still, nothing solid enough that they were willing to risk going to trial with. But the break they needed was coming. While in jail, one of Brian's cellmates told his defense attorney that he had some information he was willing to share in order to get his sentence reduced. The informant said that Brian talked to him about hiding the body. He told me, I wish I knew where they were looking. He's wondering where you guys are looking for the body at, if you guys are getting warm. The informant also claimed that Brian told him he'd shot her with a sawed-off shotgun and got rid of the body where nobody will ever find it. He said Brian questioned, What can they charge me with if they can't find a body? This was enough to convince prosecutors to bring about second-degree murder charges. The prosecutor assigned was Juan Martinez. The Brian Stewart-Rick Valentini trial began in October 2011. The first witness was a personal training client of Brian's. She testified that Brian would constantly complain about his relationship with Jamie, saying that she was his sugar mama and called her a whining, nagging bitch. The next witness was the employer from Care Fusion that had offered Jamie a job, not in Denver as Brian had claimed, but nearby in Phoenix. Another witness was a friend of Jamie's who testified that he'd seen Jamie just days before she went missing, and she was covered in bruises. The thing that put the nail in Valentini's coffin, though, was when he took the stand in his own defense, despite his lawyer's warnings. When on the stand, he told the same stories he had told the police, but it wasn't working, and the jury didn't buy it. With only four hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a guilty verdict, even without a body or really no physical evidence that a murder had occurred. Rick Valentini was sentenced to a total of 54 years in prison, 22 years for second-degree murder, 20 years for fraud, and 12 more years for other crimes related to the murder. Eight years after she was murdered, the remains of Jamie Laity were found in an empty lot that was holding large piles of rock and dirt as a landscaping supply company were moving the piles. Medical examiners stated her bones were too degraded to determine a cause of death.
Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.